Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. CHwine.com slash T-H-O-M or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. So glad to have you with us. There's a bunch of stuff that really needs to be highlighted. By the way, any minute now, Barack Obama is going to be giving a speech. We'll keep you up to date on what he has to say. But Kavanaugh, he has, I mean, any other Supreme Court nominee in any other point in history, this would be the 
top of the news. This would be the above the fold headline on the New York Times. Birth control pills work by two mechanisms. Hormonal birth control, the stuff that was legalized in 1961. Now, the theory that was put forward in the 1960s that was actually, this is what science believed, was that somehow they were preventing a fertilized egg from moving down the fallopian tube into the uterus and implanting. So fertilization had happened, and according to the Catholics, that's when life begins, although the ovum couldn't implant, and therefore, basically, you had a fertilized egg that was being expelled with a menstrual period. That was the theory. In the 70s, they figured out that that's not how it works. The way it works is that the hormonal birth controls do two things. They Number one, they thicken the mucus in the cervix. It's basically like putting a diaphragm in. It blocks the sperm from even getting into the uterus, much less up into the fallopian tubes, number one. And number two, if it does, they block ovulation. They prevent the ovaries from producing an egg that goes into the fallopian tubes to be available to the sperm. So they don't cause abortions, right? Even if you're arguing that an abortion is expelling a fertilized egg. Well, apparently nobody told this to Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh appears to be still operating off the old science, which is still being promulgated in these crisis pregnancy centers and by, you know, right-wingers and Christian fundamentalists and some Catholics even are still promoting this idea that hormonal birth control is actually an abortion pill, essentially. And here's what Kavanaugh had to say yesterday in response to questioning from Ted Cruz. Another case you were involved in as a judge as you wrote a dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk in the Priest for Life case. Can you tell this committee about that case and your opinion there? That was a group that was being forced to provide certain kind of health coverage over their religious objections. This is health coverage that included birth control pills. uh, Under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, The question was, first, was this a substantial burden on the religious exercise? And it seemed to me quite clearly uh, it was. It was a technical matter of filling out a form in that case. But they said filling out the form would make them complicit in the provision of the abortion-inducing drugs that they were, as a religious matter, objected to. You get this? The abortion-inducing drugs? These were birth control pills. They did not want their insurance company to pay for birth control pills. That's what we're talking about here. This is bizarre. This guy, you think Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned when Kavanaugh gets on the bench? It'll happen the first day. In addition, we've got, you know, this long list of Kavanaugh's lies. There's this absolute promotion, first of all, of Brett Kavanaugh. Sinclair stations have now produced this, according to MediaMatters.org, six must-run segments pushing Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. Six of them. And so people watching Sinclair stations are getting these sales pitches for Kavanaugh's nomination. He lied about abortion, obviously. That was his flag. That was his way of saying to the fundamentalists, yeah, forget about Roe v. Wade. Forget about abortion. I'm going to go with the guys who want to outlaw birth control pills, was essentially what Brett Kavanaugh was saying. But in addition, Joan McCarter writing over in the Daily Kos, Brett Kavanaugh lied under oath to Congress in 2004 and 2006. And Pat Leahy has documented those lies, and Dianne Feinstein has documented those lies. The first one is in 2004, he told Ted Kennedy that he wasn't involved in handling Bill Pryor's nomination when he worked for George W. Bush. Bill Pryor was 
a court nominee, federal judge. And the reason Bill Pryor was a big deal was Bill Pryor explicitly said, Roe v. Wade, I'm quoting, Roe v. Wade was the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law. And so Kavanaugh is now denying that he had anything to do with trying to get Bill Pryor on the federal bench. And in fact, we've got, you know, Leahy lays out actual emails where he's talking about it. It was a June 2003 email inviting Kavanaugh to attend an emergency umbrella meeting at a private law firm to, quote, discuss nominee Bill Pryor's hearing. He told uh, Pat Leahy yesterday that he had nothing to do with the stolen email, stolen from Pat Leahy himself, stolen from the Senate Judiciary Committee, and given to Republicans about the Democrats' strategy, their, their strategy around you know, what they were going to do with judge nominations. And it turns out he was very involved in that. Public emails show that he was lying under oath when he told Leahy in 2006 that he didn't know about illegal warrantless wiretapping. We now have an email from Kavanaugh to John Yu dated September 17, 2001, asking, quote, any results yet on the Fourth Amendment implications of random constant surveillance of phone and email conversations of non-citizens who are in the United States when the purpose of the surveillance is to prevent terrorism and criminal violence? How's that warrantless wiretapping going, basically, is what he said. Oh, no, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't even know what was going on. I read about it in the New York Times. No, you've lied. Dick Durbin yesterday said that there are at least three specific examples in which Kavanaugh participated in discussions about the Bush administration's detainee and torture policy. And again, yesterday he said, oh, I didn't know. I In 2006, Kavanaugh denied under oath that he'd been involved in that policymaking. And then finally, Louise Mensch tweeted this a couple days ago, and I retweeted it. And somebody said, oh, why are you retweeting Louise Mensch? So I pulled it and found, you know, another similar one to retweet. I should have just written one myself. But the question, Kavanaugh had $200,000 in credit card debt last year. This year, he doesn't. What the hell's going on? Who paid off his credit card debt, number one? And number two, how did he run up that kind of debt? It looks like a lot of it was buying baseball tickets. Baseball tickets? Was this a way of paying off a gambling debt? We don't know. And nobody asked. Meanwhile, the Trump administration announced their intention Thursday to lift court-ordered limits on how long migrant children can be detained. The Trump administration wants to create a Gitmo for children, permanent or indefinite detention. Right now, the law says that you can't detain a child for more than 21 days in a detention facility, in a prison. You have to get them into a foster home or in with a family or something within 21 days. And the Trump administration is saying, no, we want to be able to hold them indefinitely. Over a Common Dreams, you can read this article. Gitmo for Children, Trump administration reveals plans to imprison families with kids indefinitely. And there's some discussion about this. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kino, what's on your mind today? Well, I want the world to know there's a group of us Republicans organizing to retire Uncle Donnie. Oh, really? And we want America to get behind Mike Pence, now he sent a little flag, he waved a little flag out the door for the public and says, we've been whispering inside here about invoking the 25th, Uh, will America be behind us? Let's all of America tell Mike Pence, invoke the 25th as soon as possible and give us a Christmas present for America. Okay, so you're a Republican and you're fine with Pence and you're not fine with Trump. Why? What's different between the two? Uh, mental state, can we say? Age, Uh mental state. Ivanka needs to take one hand and Melania needs to take the other hand and they need to walk him into retirement in some green pasture somewhere 
He did a big thing by getting to be elected president, but it's time for him to retire now. And Ivanka and Melania are going to help us. And that means America's got to support Mike Pence yeah. and, and pray for him. And we've got to have a plan. And there's the moose herders agenda now. That's us Republicans sort of in honor of Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. And the moose herders agenda is that as soon as possible, Mike Pence invoked the 25th and he pull in John Huntsman to be his vice president. Now, Teddy Roosevelt created much of our public lands. Mike Pence wants to privatize them. Uh, Teddy, let me tell you the story on Mike Pence. Sure. He thinks he's a gelding. He thinks his ball's been cut off, but he's actually a rig, and we call in the horse world. He's got some balls up inside of him, and if he'll quit getting over his fear of homosexuals, he can let his testicles show. Okay. I don't, I, you know, that was not what I was speaking of. I understand your metaphors. But my point was if you think you're a Teddy Roosevelt Republican, Teddy Roosevelt actually proposed a livable wage, higher than a minimum wage. Go back and read his square deal speeches. He wanted health care for all Americans. He wanted a strong social security system 20 years before social security was invented. Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive. Are you saying that there are progressive Republicans still in the party? Well, they're going to be converted to progressives as events unfold. I thought that I saw Donald Trump last night in his speech in Montana say that the Democrats want to destroy Social Security and Medicare. I'm sure that you know that the Democrats brought us Social Security and Medicare and have fought to defend it at every turn, and it's always been Republicans opposed to it. Are you agree with that Uncle Donnie's not thinking straight and he's got to be put in retirement? I get it. I think that's great. And I would love to know, you know, how widespread this is in Republican world. But my other question is. Do you agree with Mike Pence that Social Security should be handed over to the banks and Medicare should be handed over to United Healthcare and other big insurance companies? Uh, now, here's a meta continued the metaphor and the parable and the fable. If Mike Pence doesn't do what's right, he's going to end up being a gelding. So what's uh, okay? We're going to we, we Republicans right. that are for Mike Pence are going to join in with the Democrats, and Mike Pence is going to get Joe Biden and Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper to be special counselors after he appoints John Huntsman as vice president. And it's going to be a bipartisan administration. Very interesting. Kino, we'll see what happens. I'm skeptical, but we'll see what happens. Thanks a lot for the call. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, uh, into, your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. 
I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. On the line with us is Minister Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He is a preacher. He is a partner in crime with the Reverend, Dr. Reverend uh, William Barber in the Moral Mondays in North Carolina. He's the director of the School for Conversion in Durham, North Carolina. And he's the author of a new book, which we have featured in our Tom Harbin book reports, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. His website is jonathanwilsonhartgrove.com. And you can tweet him at Wilson Hartgrove. And welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Tom. Or welcome back to the program. I know you were on with Reverend Barber the last time we talked, as I recall. You've got a brilliant op-ed in the New York Times right now, and I strongly recommend people go check it out. It's titled The Evangelical Case Against Judge Kavanaugh. It's not on the homepage when you hit NewYorkTimes.com, but I hit the search thing and just typed in the word evangelical, and it popped up as the very, very top story. So can you lay out for us the evangelical case against Brett Kavanaugh? Well, thanks for yeah, giving me a few minutes here, because I, I think this is really important because so much of the coverage has pitted evangelicals who are supposed to be in favor of Kavanaugh with the women's rights and civil rights groups and, uh, you know, gun control groups that have grave concerns. And uh, I wanted to say as clearly as I can why I think the religious right has really duped the evangelical community for some time, and that um, this nomination of Kavanaugh is really a critical moment. Uh, their enthusiasm is largely rooted in their belief that he will join, you know, the other four uh, justices who uh, have ties to the Federalist Society and will implement the extreme agenda that they've been organizing for the last 40 years. And that agenda is counter to what I take to be the central public concerns of the Bible. If you read the prophets or Jesus, the main concern is for the widows, the children, and the immigrant. And on the issues that are coming before the court, from immigration issues to voting rights issues to uh, the rights of women and gender minorities, I mean, this is a the equal protection under the law is a huge thing. And I think the way that Christians have been told that when we stand for quote-unquote life, very narrowly, you know, defined as being against abortion and against legislation that makes that option available to people. It's really been a way of leading the community to vote against its own values. Yeah, yeah, it's, it seems absolutely to be the case. It's been a, probably 40 years. I was an ordained minister, and I have read the Bible a number of times, and I went through a form of seminary back in the day and ran a church for three years, three and a half years. Uh, as, All right, you're as, still preaching. As the I pastor, yeah, <laughs> I know. And but uh, it's been a while since I've since I've read the Bible. And my but my recollection is in John, in like the fourth or fifth or sixth chapter of John. There's some, uh, not the book of John, the first John, that there's mm -hmm. a, a rant about look out for the ravening wolves who are coming in sheep's clothing. And I'm wondering, uh, a if you can. John you know, says the measure is our love for one another. The, well, that too. But I'm, I'm concerned about the possibility that the evangelical movement has been basically co-opted from within by people who 
by the definitions of Jesus, are not Christians. By the standards no. of Matthew 25, they're not followers of the teachings of Christ. And no. this corruption of the evangelical movement is something that is, frankly, I don't even think is being discussed inside the evangelical movement, or at least the, the white well, evangelical movement. Yeah. Many of us are trying. Uh, what, what breaks my heart is that if you go back, you know, 50 years and ask who was trying to do then what evangelicals, or at least these so-called spokespeople for evangelicals, are so enthused about today, uh, you find the John Birch Society, right? That's who was trying to impeach Earl Warren after uh, what they now call, quote-unquote, activist judges began to make decisions in the 1960s that were expanding democracy. Well, it was also Brown um, v. Board. That was the thing that really kicked him off. Absolutely, yeah. yeah that's, what, in that's what fired them up. And while Kavanaugh will say that he thinks, you know, Brown v. Board was a was a defining moment for the court, he certainly uh, hasn't said anything in the last few days uh, to say that he would support the many decisions since then that have tried to actually in implement it. Because, um, I mean, I live in Durham, North Carolina. Brown v. Board was 1954. They didn't integrate schools here until 1971. There was a long-term fight to resist Brown, and there has been an even longer fight to try to roll it back. And uh, I think the way that those corporate interests and frankly, racist ideologies were used to organize the evangelical community and to say that it was about Roe v. Wade, even though what really got the religious right fired up was under the Carter administration when the IRS came down on their independent schools, which were essentially segregation academies, you know, an attempt yep. Yep. to have ed education that was only for white kids. That whole history has been whitewashed, and there's this cherry-picking of verses you know, that sound good and moral. And to me, it's exactly what Jesus and John, who you mentioned, and the prophets in the Old Testament were, were talking about when they talked about how dangerous it is when religious figures kowtow to power and use religion to cover over the way power is being abused. Yeah. So just to put a punctuation point on this, to, we're talking with Minister Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, director of the School for Conversion in Durham, North Carolina, the author of Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. What specifically, if you had to boil this down to essentially a bumper sticker or a message that you would leave on the answering machine of your senator, if you called 202-224-3121 for the U.S. Senate, what would that be about Mr. Kavanaugh? Yeah, what I'm saying to Senator Tom Tillis and Senator Richard Burr from here in North Carolina and to any others who will listen is that as a Christian and as someone who is committed to life, my grave concern is that Kavanaugh's record demonstrates that on the issues of equal protection under the law for ethnic minorities, for LGBTQ community, for workers' rights, and for voting rights, especially. Uh, I mean, here in North Carolina, we've had a, a long struggle against voting rights. We wanted at the Supreme Court uh, our fight to overturn a voter suppression law. But now the legislature that Tom Tillis oversaw as speaker until he went to the Senate, now that same legislature has put the voter ID that was deemed intentional racism by the Supreme Court. They've put it on the ballot for us to vote for this November. Yep. So on all of these issues, I think it's incredibly important for people of faith to say, because we love our neighbor, we don't want to see a judge who's committed to such extremism on the court. Yeah.
I'm, I'm with you. Uh, Minister Wilson Hartgrove, thank you so much for dropping by today. It's, it's great talking with you, and I appreciate your perspective and your willingness to speak out. Thank you so much, sir. Good to talk to you. Take care. And once again, let me refer people to, uh, to Minister Hartgrove, uh, Wilson Hartgrove's op-ed, The Evangelical Case Against Judge Kavanaugh. It is a great read. It really is. Check it out. President uh, Obama, in his speech, was just talking about how only one in five young people voted in the last national election. One in five. I'm not sure exactly what he's defining as young people, but I'm guessing, you know, under 25. Uh, One out of five. And he has won elections where he won by five votes or 20 votes in precinct after precinct after precinct across the state and ended up as a consequence of that winning the entire state. That your vote does matter, and it really does. It's really an important point. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's up? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. I wanted to call and discuss Kavanaugh, Mm -hmm. because I agree with you that uh, Kavanaugh would put an end to all forms of birth control. And I grew up under this here in Montgomery, Alabama, under a misogynistic man who told me repeatedly as a child that because I was a girl, I did not need to go to school, that I would just grow up, get married, and have babies, and that that's the only purpose in my life. And growing up here in the South, watching the civil rights movement, I think that if Kavanaugh is on the bench, the only people in this country who will have any rights within five years will be only rich white men that no one else in this country will matter. And I want to ask everybody to please call the Senate and talk to them, whether they're yours or not, because we were born free and we have a right to live free. At 202-224-3121 is the number for the switchboard for the U.S. Senate if you would like to register your opinion with your senator and particularly call Murkowski and Collins. Yeah, and and, and Colin Highcat. Right. You can get to her through the switchboard at 224-3121. That reaches every single senator. And Norma, the point that you're making, I think, ties into my original rant from, I think it was Tuesday, about where all this stuff is going and where it's come from. We've, can't you see a new constitution coming and that we do not have the right to do anything? And how dangerous it is when the Supreme Court is out of step with the American public, as happened with the Dred Scott decision. I mean, in a small way, that happened with Brown v. Board of Education, but they weren't out of step with America. They were out of step with Virginia. Virginia shut down their public schools in response to Brown v. Board. Remember George Wallace standing in the door of the University of Alabama? Yes. Segregation now, segregation forever. Yes. And I think that if Kavanaugh is confirmed, and we have five judges who can do whatever they want, the way the Senate and the House are doing whatever they want now, democracy in the United States is done. And we will lose the right to, you know, I can remember when if I walked down the street and spoke to a black person, I would be chastised and I almost got fired when I hired black people. When I hired black people privately to work for me when I was raising horses, I had the white men in the neighborhood come yell at me and also tell me I was paying them too much to build a barn. Wow, that's amazing. Norma. Back to that. Norma, thank you for sharing your stories with us. I I always appreciate hearing from you. And welcome back to our Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading From Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. The subtitle, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming 
of the presidency. This is from the afterword, the very last chapter. It's titled Kali Yuga, which in Hinduism is when the earth goes into a phase of destruction. In the shell-shocked aftermath of the election, President Obama, looking shaken, appeared in the White House Rose Garden to deliver public remarks intended to project a sense of calm, a sense, really, that the basic stability of our country remained intact. Sun is up, Obama said. I know everybody had a long night. I did as well. Had a chance to talk to President-elect Trump last night, about 3.30 in the morning, I think it was, to congratulate him on winning the election. End of quote. The next day, when the two men appeared together in the Oval Office, it felt as if the world had slipped through the looking glass. Trump quickly named Bannon his chief White House strategist. Republicans controlled every branch of government. With Trump's ability to defy every political norm, anything seemed possible. Who could argue otherwise after what had just transpired? And yet, within days of his inauguration, Trump's White House was plunged into chaos and scandal, from which it has not recovered and may never. Bannon, the imaginative reconceiver of U.S. politics, hung streams of paper listing, listing Trump's promises from the walls of his West Wing office. His strategy, as always, was to launch furious attacks, this time to, quote, shock the system, end quote, and rapidly reorient the federal government in a more nationalist direction. He called this, with what I took to be intentional irony, a shock and awe approach to asserting Trump's power. But Trump's flurry of activity quickly ran into problems. There was his executive order, sprung a week after his inauguration, banning immigrants from seven majority Muslim countries, which set off nationwide protests and was blocked by the courts. His firing two weeks later of National Security Director Michael Flynn for contacts with the Russians. The collapse of his first major legislative initiative, a bill to repeal Obamacare. His firing of FBI Director James Comey. And the swift descent of the West Wing into a viper's nest of backstabbing and leaks. This quick turn toward a crack-up was hardly unforeseeable or even altogether surprising, but it contrasted sharply with the success of a candidate who had dominated his opponents, shaped news coverage, and shown himself to be all but impervious to the forces that overwhelm other politicians. Bannon, whose wild gambits in the campaign had invariably paid off, seemed to run out of magic tricks when Hillary Clinton was no longer a target. The government wasn't as malleable to Trump and Bannon's aggressions as the Republican Party and the cable news channels had been, and they found themselves consistently thwarted and undermined by the courts, by right-wing hardliners in Congress, by their own inexperience and Trump's errant tweets, and by the bureaucracy they were now overseeing. The crises these failures precipitated in the White House cost Bannon much of his influence and soon threatened Trump's presidency. While still early in his term, the possibilities Trump's most ardent supporters once imagined for his presidency already seem to be mostly foreclosed. I think there are three main reasons why Trump's administration has so quickly fallen into disorder and confusion. Number one, Trump thought being president was about asserting dominance. Just after he'd locked up the GOP nominations, Trump said something to me that crystallized his view of politics and explains, to my mind, much of his subsequent difficulties. Quote, I deal with people that are very extraordinarily talented people, he told me. I deal with Steve Wynn. I deal with Carl Icahn. I deal with killers that blow these politicians away. It's not even the same category. This, he meant politics. This is a category that's like 19 levels lower. You understand what I'm saying? Brilliant killers. Trump was equating politics with business and the presidency with the job of being a big-shot CEO, a killer. He filled the upper ranks of his administration with people of a similar mindset. Gary Cohn, Wilbur Ross, Steve Bannon, 
aggressive, domineering men accustomed to getting their way by dint of their position. None had government experience, nor did many others in the West Wing. So none anticipated the problems this approach to governing would cause. Trump's self-conception as the all-powerful apprentice boss blinded him to a fundamental truth of the modern presidency, that the president needs Congress more than the Congress needs the president. Trump's domineering instinct served him poorly, since most members of Congress are secure in their jobs and accountable mainly to their own constituents. And it backfired disastrously when Trump fired Comey after he refused to submit to a pledge of loyalty to his boss. Number two, Trump ran against the Republican Party, Wall Street, and Paul Ryan, but then took up their agenda. Populists often struggle to govern, but Trump scarcely attempted to lead the populist revolution that he promised. In May, he told me he would transform the Republican Party into a workers' party. But while he kept voicing populist sibyleths, the legislative agenda he took up was the standard conservative fare pushed by Paul Ryan. During the GOP primary, Trump has shrewdly sensed its weak point, Ryan's desire to finance tax cuts for the rich by cutting programs like Social Security and Medicaid, armed the party's white blue-collar base. Trump told me he'd made this point to Ryan directly. He said, quote, there's no way a Republican is going to beat a Democrat when the Republican is saying, we're going to cut your Social Security, and the Democrat is saying, we're going to keep it and give you more. The book is Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. A couple of things I wanted to point out. Just imagine if this had been an Obama supporter. There, it, it, this is floating around the Twitterverse. I retweeted it earlier, and uh, quite a few people have responded to it on my Twitter feed over at Tom underscore Hartman. And uh, it was originally tweeted by Riot Women. And it's a, a video of Trump's speech last night, his, his campaign rally last night in Montana. Yes, he's campaigning for president for 2020. He kicked off that campaign the day after he was inaugurated so that they could raise campaign money, which is not regulated the way that other kinds of money are. But in any case, it's a Trump supporter standing right behind Trump in the shot who takes the American flag and wipes her nose all over it. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's as gross as it sounds. In fact, it's grosser than it sounds. You can, you can see it over on, on our Twitter feed. And then there's this, this weird thing with this, this uh, young woman, Zena Bash, who was sitting behind Kavanaugh throughout uh, at least two of the three days of the hearings, maybe all three. And, you know, she's worked apparently with Stephen Miller in the White House. Stephen Miller famously in front of the White House podium making white power signs. And she gets a text message and then she does this white power sign. And then the, the Twitterverse blows up. Everybody gets hysterical. Then her husband comes out and says, no, wait a minute. She's her mother's Latina and her father's Jewish or the other way around. And, you know, how, why would she, you know, be making a white power sign? And then the next day, uh, yesterday, she does it again. And so the question, you know, is she trying to flip out people who are flipped out easily by people pretending to be fans of white power? And if so, why? Why would you do that in the hearings for Brett Kavanaugh, one of the most white bread guys ever put on the, on the Supreme Court? I mean, it seems like she would be hurting herself, even if it's just trolling. And then last night, when Trump was speaking in Montana, he kept making the same sign. It's, it's the OK sign, right, which is the, uh, the O, the thumb and, and uh, index finger is supposed to be the P for power. And, and the three fingers then that stick up in the air is supposed to be the W for white. Trump uses this constantly. Now, the question in my mind is, did Trump make that sign with his hand? And I don't know the answer to this. Did Trump make that sign with his hand when he spoke as a matter of course and of routine before he began running for president? 
or was it something you know you'll recall when he did when he was running for president the people at, at Cambridge Analytica who were being paid by by uh, the Mercer billionaires uh, sat him down and said hey, you want to win an election talk about building a wall on the southern border and Trump was like building a wall that's stupid and they were like no no do it and and go off on immigrants and talk about trade and I mean they gave him a list of things you can google this this is this is common knowledge I'm wondering if one of the things they said to him is, make this symbol with your hand whenever possible. Replace your normal gestures with this. Or has he always just done the OK symbol? Which, you know, is entirely possible. I'm not going all crazy conspiracy theory on this. I just find it fascinating that this woman, who obviously knew what she was doing, continued doing it for the camera. I have no idea why. Is she just some kind of narcissist who wants to draw attention to herself? Or is she trying to promote the message that, that she works with Stephen Miller in the White House? Stephen Miller, clearly a white supremacist and being in charge of the immigration policy, the separating babies from their mother's policy if they're brown people. You don't do it if they're white people. I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. Richard in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Richard, what's up? So if Kavanaugh actually does get onto the bench, what, what's this country going to look like when, you know, there's five very conservative reactionary uh, justices, and um, the country um, wants changes, such as health care, protection of the environment, that kind of thing. And, you know, so you could have 95% of the people want gun um, regulation. They won't allow that to happen. What, right. what, is, this, what is this going to look like? So? This was my opening rant, uh, I believe it was Tuesday, maybe it was Friday of last week that when the Supreme Court is out of step with the people, you have an explosive combination. The last time we saw this was the era from 1933 until 1937. And during that time, Franklin Roosevelt kept passing law after law after law, and the Supreme Court kept striking them down. You know, this was the end of the Lochner era court. And for example, the National Industrial Recovery Act, also known as the NRA, the National Recovery Act, it provided for a minimum wage, it provided for an absolute right to unionization. Uh, it provided for maximum work hours. And uh, it provided a venue for workers to have a, a place where they could challenge their employers without fear of punishment. Um, the Supreme Court struck down all of those provisions. In fact, I believe they struck down the entire NRA. It might have been just most of it. And as a violation of the individual right to contract uh, between employees and employers. And this created an explosion. I mean, you know, this, they struck down a good chunk of the New Deal. This was in 1935 that they struck this down. And uh, late 1935 and into early 1936, this was going on. And then in 36, it was an election year, and FDR started campaigning on this. And so the Supreme Court put on their docket to hear arguments in late 36 on the constitutionality of Social Security and the constitutionality of, uh, there was another piece to it. It might have been the WPA. I forget what which part of it, but it was... Uh, you know, two major issues that, that FDR had. And that was when he started talking about he was going to pack the court. And in 1937, after he was sworn in, he won the election in 36 in a landslide. And in 37, uh, and he, I believe he had the votes to do it. You can read about this in the book about Frances Perkins as, uh, being the first labor secretary, uh, the woman who wrote the New Deal, I think is the title of the book. Um, but it's all right there. And the court backed out from FDR's pressure. But in the 1860s, 1860, the court did not back down. Uh, Roger Tawney said that slaves are the property of their owners, period, full stop, anywhere in the country. Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not going to enforce your decision. 
So it's a prescription for disaster, basically, Richard. Thank you for the call. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain-Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907, when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right-wing group, sued, the Supreme, sued to the Supreme Court with right-wing, right-wing hitman and former Reagan solicitor General Ted Olson, the man who argued Bush's side of Bush v. Gore, as their lead lawyer. This new case, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, presented the best opportunity for the Roberts Court to use its five-vote majority to completely rewrite the face of American politics rolling us back to the pre-1907 era of the robber barons. And if there was one man to do it, it was John Roberts. Although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children, Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit for a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in The New Yorker, quote, in every ma- major case since he became the nation's 17th chief justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant, the state over the condemned, the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party, end of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time. If it becomes upset with a politician, it can carpet bomb her district and with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the Citizens United case, the Robert courts listened, Roberts courts listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision. But instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it had originally been argued, whether a single part of a single piece of legislation, in this case McCain-Feingold, was unconstitutional, the court asked for it to be re-argued in September 2009 and asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to re-examine the rationales for Congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations. In this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine and perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain-Feingold as constitutional. The setup for this 2010 decision came in June of 2007. In the Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life case, 
in which the Robert Courts ruled that the FCC could not prevent Wisconsin Right to Life from running ads just because it was a corporation. The idea of Congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly, clearly horrifying to both Roberts and Scalia. Scalia went after the 1990 Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, in which the then Rehnquist court had ruled that the Michigan Chamber of Commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation. Scalia complained, this Austin was the only pre-McConnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. Austin upheld state restrictions on corporate independent expenditures, and God forbid the statute had been modeled after the federal statute, the BCRA 203 amended. End of quote. The Austin case Scalia concluded, with four others nodding, was a significant departure from ancient First Amendment principles. In my view, it was wrongly decided. Scalia was quoted at length from opinions in the Gross Gene v. American Press 1936 case, in Scalia's words, quote, holding that corporations are guaranteed the freedom of speech and of press, safeguarded by the due process of law clause of the 14th Amendment. He also quoted the 1986 Pacific Gas and Electric Company versus Public Utility Commission of California case. The identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected. Corporations and other associations like individuals contribute to the discussion, debate, and the dissemination of information and ideas that the First Amendment seeks to foster. The bottom line for Scalia was, quote, the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the First Amendment's protection and is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. The book, Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast.
Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us is Bob Nay. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And Congressman, welcome back. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I should add you're the author of the book Sideswiped, which is really worth getting and reading. So uh, what's, what's on the hit parade? I wasn't able to watch uh, President Obama's entire speech. Were there any high points that uh, you caught? Yes. I think that uh, with President Obama's speech, it was just really a, a fantastic message, I would say. Uh, and, and what he's saying is that you can go ahead and, you know, complain about things and how the state of affairs are, but the real problem remains in the sense that you've got to get to the ballot box, and if you don't do that, then that's a, a real problem. Yeah, no more hand-rigging. And he pointed out that only one out of five young people voted in the last election. Well, yes, that's the other thing. He was talking about participation, people getting out to, you know, to vote. Also, I mean, he obviously hit on President Trump and about the voices. And then he talked about how the promise was there to clean up corruption and then plunder away. He said they start undermining norms that assure accountability and they appeal to racial nationalism. He said, does this sound familiar? Tom, what he said is, you know, how hard is it to denounce Nazis, was what he was referring to, obviously, with, you know, Charlottesville. So he had his attacks, but I must say, the president has consistently, when there's hand-wringing, which is okay, but the president consistently warns, I think, the people and the Democratic Party, wring your hands, but get out to vote. And the fact of, you know, getting young people participating in the system. So this was the launch of the, of the midterms for President Obama. Fascinating. And a good thing. I'm, I'm so glad to see him back in the fray. Um, I'm, I'm reading this piece in Slate by William Selatan saying that the obvious suspect for the anonymous op-ed is John Huntsman. Apparently, he's the U.S. ambassador to Russia and, uh, you know, was a contender for the Republican primary. And uh, apparently his denial is a non-denial denial. And a lot of the things that he said that is said in the op-ed are just classic Huntsman right down to some of the language. Um, what are your thoughts on who might have written this? Well, now I'm thinking, how could Huntsman, on a daily basis, influence the operation of the Oval Office? From you Moscow. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to argue, and still, still argue, that no matter who this is, and I don't know who, it's not the vice president, I don't believe it's Huntsman, it's somebody inside there. I still argue that... And they may fire this person when they catch them, and maybe they, quote, get a, you know, be quiet and get a nice little job later or some contract or lobby contract. I'm still arguing this is a branding. It is known. They knew. And now, you know, President Trump's saying, uh, Sessions, I want you to find out who this is and things like that. I still think if Trump didn't know, somebody high up, maybe the chief of staff or whatever, said, we've got to do something. We've got to change his behavior. This is the way we do it. So you're still in the camp that thinks that it might be John Kelly? John Kelly's apparently not issued a denial? John Kelly or an assistant to Kelly, which would be high up. Right. And, and what I think they did is they're trying to, I don't think they're trying to, to do the country a favor. and do, I think they're trying to rehabilitate the president to keep him going. I think they're trying to rehabilitate themselves. I mean, none of these people who have left, you know, you look at Sean Spicer, none of these guys who have left the uh, the Oval Office, the, you know, being near Trump 
have been able to land a good job because their reputations are so destroyed by their association with Trump. So, you know, if John Kelly wrote this and he wants to get a job, you know, after he leaves office at, you know, typically what a person of his stature would get is a million dollar a year job of showing up four times a year at, you know, one of the big defense contractors as, as a member of their board of directors and they just pay him an obscene amount of money. That's how generals retire out of the military these days. Right. I just think he's trying to protect his retirement. Yeah, and I think, look, the military thinking always is, you know, they've got to do this, uh, they're, they're saving the country, et cetera. So it's, it's that style of thinking that, you know, might makes right and what they need to do. Now, I, I'm not yeah. criticizing the veterans. I'm just talking about the Pentagon, right? right. Uh, that's, how, that's how they think. And I'm looking at this, and I just seriously believe, maybe Trump didn't know, but they're trying to do it more to save him themselves, the Oval Office, than they are to do a cause. Well, I, what I think. yeah, I agree with Frank Rich's piece in The New Yorker today that he says that this guy is like the Vichy French, uh, the, the French collaborators who who uh, fought on the side of Hitler and or who, you know, were on Hitler's side inside France. And among the Vichy French, there were people who claimed to be parts of the resistance, particularly after the war. And they actually weren't the resistance. They were actually the collaborators. That, that whoever wrote this thing is a collaborator, not a resistor. Uh-huh. Your Correct. thoughts? Uh, yes. I you agree with that sentiment? Inside. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, 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 that's, like I said, I've argued day one, this isn't some white knight that's in there and they're going to do something. This is a planned, methodical reason this was done. Yeah, I agree. And it wasn't to, to, to save, quote, the country. I agree. What else is in the news, Bob? Well, I just wanted to comment on Giuliani for a second. You and I talked way back when. The first day he went on TV, he wasn't a lawyer. He was on there to day one, set this up for what happened yesterday, which is, you know, the president is going to say nothing about anything. He's not going to answer anything. So with regard to the Mueller investigation. Yeah. And, and so it's right into, into Mueller's court of what he wants to do. So I think they, from day one, they, there was no intentions ever to do this. Giuliani was the guy that was out there. And again, <clears throat> friends of mine talked about his legal ability. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He was out there to set the stage for what happened yesterday, which is, that's it. There'll be no communication, period. And if, and if Mueller has to make a choice, he, you know, what does he do? And if he indicts or he subpoenas, boom, it's going to go into the court combined with the op-ed and the deep state and everything that's going on, then the Republicans put out a mantra, you know, to try to effectively save themselves that there's this plot out there to undo things that are going to be done, you know, for the good of the people, quote. And there's this this plot, including Mueller. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think think happens with it. Yeah, we'll see how it all shakes out. What else is up? Well, also... um, we were looking, you know, Senator Booker, this is interesting, Tom, because, as you know, he was willing to uh, take penalties, you know, to release information. And the committee itself, even though President Bush's attorney, Burke, says he talked to, to Senator Booker's office, it was fascinating. And let's assume he did do that, to talk to Senator Booker's office, they were going to approve this to be released. It was fascinating. The next day, when this started, the committee didn't even know it. Right. They had no idea. Yeah, and I, I believe Cory Booker that he didn't know it. Um, or that it wasn't, it wasn't yet available. Uh, you know, I don't think he was grandstanding. I think that this was a serious pushback and, uh, oh, by the way, when do you think the Senate's going to vote on Kavanaugh? Oh, Kavanaugh will be in place by October the 1st in place. Wow. Okay. In place. That's incredible. Bob Nay, Good Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. Always good talking to you.
That's assuming that uh, Lisa, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins don't flip. And uh, we've got to do everything we can to get them to flip. The number for the Senate is 202-224-3121. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Nader in San Rafael, California. Hey, Nader, what's on your mind? Uh, hello, Tom. Uh, thank you so much for your program. I really appreciate your thoughts. Uh, I just wanted to mention, uh, because of uh, Obama talking about the economy and the recovery and all of that, that the economy doing supposedly as well as it's doing, it, it is going to really carry Trump into a second term because that's what all his supporters, well, the ones who are not openly racist and all of that, but the ones that actually can have a dialogue, that's what they talk about, that uh, he's doing well, the economy's doing well, uh, companies are uh, doing great, people are hiring uh, so what is that, in your opinion, all about? Because if he doesn't know what he's doing, which seems to be very clear, what is going on with the economy? And uh, yes, maybe it did start with Obama and we're continuing that recovery. But the net result of this is that Trump supporters are taking the credit. And in his talk last night where all his supporters are cheering and clearly they are selected as his supporters who listen to Fox News, they may have a very shallow understanding of what's actually happening to this country. Yeah, these are campaign events. The only people that they allow in are people who have donated to his campaign. Um, here's, here's what I think is going on, Nader. Let me just cut right to the chase. The Republican Party has made a, a deal with the devil here. They want to get control of the Supreme Court. This has been the holy grail of the Koch brothers, the right-wing billionaires, corporate America, the, the Chamber of Commerce. This has been their holy grail since the 60s and 70s. And they took a huge step forward when Nixon put Lewis Powell on the court in 72, and then Powell ruled in Buckley versus Vallejo in 76 that money equals speech and billionaires can own politicians. And then that followed up with First National right. Bank versus Bellotti, et cetera. You know that history. They have not right. succeeded in having a solid and predictable five-vote majority that is totally conservative on this court. They've been close. I mean, they had five votes for Bush v. Gore. They've had, you know, there have been a lot of five-four decisions where Kennedy was the swing vote. But ever since, just since Roberts was on the court, there have been 51 major policy decisions where Roberts voted with the other three conservatives. They had four sides, four on the conservative side. And Kennedy, the swing vote, voted with the liberals. And so thus we got, for example, national gay marriage. We got upholding Roe v. Wade. We got upholding some workplace protections. So, I mean, there's a number of things, 51 times just in the last few years where these guys have split. If you replace Roberts with somebody who is ideologically similar to or to the right of Excuse me, if you replace Kennedy with somebody who is ideologically similar or to the right of Roberts or Thomas or Alito, then what you're going to end up with is a court that is reliably and consistently going to vote in favor of corporations, in favor of churches, in favor of uh, basically fascist ideology, the merger of corporate and state interests. And that's who Kavanaugh is. 
And so the Republicans looking at this said, okay, the, the big goal here is the Supreme Court. This is the most important thing. We've been trying to do this forever. We got, we got sabotaged by Souter. We got sabotaged by Kennedy. We've had a bunch of Republican appointees. Even Sandra Day O'Connor was not the conservative we thought she was. We, we encouraged her to leave the court. We, you know, we, we just, we've always had these problems. We need to get this reliable court. So how do we do it? Okay, Trump is president. We're going to, A, we're going to make Trump president, right? We're going to throw everything we can into that. And that's why Mitch McConnell was willing to take this huge political gamble of blocking Merrick Garland for a whole year uh, and, and, right. and destroying the reputation of not only the Senate, but of Mitch McConnell. He was willing to do this because they were pretty sure that with the voter suppression, particularly in the Midwest, that they would be able to, to get Trump into office. And they were right. I mean, there was obviously a big bet that he made, but it paid off. And I don't think he would have made the bet if he didn't think that there was a better than 50% chance of it paying off, number one. Number two, they knew once Trump came into office that the only way that they would be able to hold on to that office is if they could goose the economy. There was so much crazy stuff that these guys are doing. They're selling off our public lands. They're destroying the Affordable Care Act. They're trying to, they're trying to privatize Social Security. They're trying to do away with Medicare. They're still fighting Medicaid expansion in the states. They're suppressing votes all over the country, and people are getting wise to it. There's so much awful stuff. They're, they're promoting misogynistic laws, anti-abortion stuff. There's so much of this horrible stuff going on. They, they said, we've got to have something that is going to basically blind the American people and, and cause them to support Trump. If you look back on all the races in the, in the last hundred years where a, an incumbent Republican president was running for re-election, which gives you an indication of how this works, the times that they won, Republican or Democrat, the times that they won were when the economy was really on a roll in the six months leading up to the election. The times that they lost was when the economy was in the tank in the six months leading up to the election. So they're sitting around going, okay, if we're going to get our Supreme Court nominee, if we're going to get what we want done, if we're going to continue to deregulate industry, if we're going to continue to privatize public lands, and if we're going to have a launching pad for the larger issue, uh, effort to privatize Social Security and destroy Medicare, we have to have a high level of popularity for the Republicans and for the president. We have to hang on to the Senate at the very least uh, in the midterm elections, in the congressional elections of 2018. So how do we do that? We pour money into the economy. We pour borrowed money into the economy. Now, there are some people in the Republican Party who said, hey, wait a minute, you're going to borrow a trillion and a half dollars and pour that into the economy in the form of tax breaks for billionaires and big corporations. Yes, of course, that's going to stimulate the economy. This is what I was saying back in the 80s when Reagan did the same thing. Everybody was like, oh, look at how wonderful the economy is under Reagan. And I was like, yeah, you give me a trillion dollar credit card. I can show you what it looks like to live large, but the bill will come due. And, and there are Republicans, you know, uh, David Frum, uh, David Stockman, people out there saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, you put a trillion and a half dollars on the national credit card, that is a prescription for disaster. And the Republicans said, yeah, sure, it absolutely is. And we're going to do everything we can to hold that disaster off until a Democrat is in office, which will probably be 2020. So the bet that they're making right now is that they can hold off the crash until 2020. This was the bet, by the way, that they were making in 2004. In, the, in that election was that they could hold off uh, leading up to the 2008 election. They knew how fragile the economy was in the 2000s, in that first decade of the 2000s. They knew it. 
And they continued, and this is why Bush had these repeated tax cuts and, and why he was amping, ramping, radically amping up military spending in Iraq and Afghanistan. They knew that if they poured money into the economy, they could postpone the crash. And they almost did it. If Bush had just been able to get eight more months, the crash would have happened like the week that Obama won the election, which would have been perfect from the Republicans' point of view. They're playing that same game and making that same bet right now. And they're playing with fire. Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Please get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 